Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Non-Contact Time, a podcast about all things educational with Hannah and Kath. I'm Kath. I'm Hannah. And what's on the agenda today, Hannah, in this Back to Work special? This week, we're going to speak to an ex-PGCE student, Sophie, and that's in data. She's going to tell us about her experiences on the PGCE program. In teaching and learning, we're going to talk about lots of different behaviour management techniques. In pupils causing concern, we're going to hear a story from Sophie. And in any other business, we're going to tell you a little bit more about future episodes, Patreon, and how you can get involved. In data today, we're going to be speaking to Sophie, who completed her PGCE from September 2019 until July 2020, and she's starting her first job this September. So let's hear from Sophie. So Sophie, in five words, describe teaching to you. Organisation. This is two words, but time management, discipline, mm-hmm. consistency, and respect. Consistency is my favourite. I really like yeah. That. I, I remember being in staff meetings before in other schools, and that's the thing they bang on about the most. You have yeah. to have consistency. I yeah, absolutely. I kind of strive on consistency because um, it was one of the main things that I learnt in my first placement was you need to be consistent in order to have good behaviour management, time management, um, respect for um, people who are dealing with both students and teachers you know um you know like your uh employees and things so it's really important to be consistent and uh make sure that everything's all right <laughs> so yeah <laughs> so true um so in five words describe the best type of student to teach self-motivated um are usually the best kind of students to have um, they're the ones who want to learn Good behaviour, respectful of, mm. of you as a teacher. Like they enjoy the subject, so mm. kind of enjoyment of the subject. You know, you kind of want you want them to be self motivated. So just all of those in a blend, really. Respect covers so much too. It it res- does. Respect it really for does. equipment, respect for you, respect for each other. It does cover so much. So I can understand mm-hmm. why you're like respect is so important. <laughs> <laughs> It is. (laughs) Um, What is your classroom pet peeve? That one student, uh, like the myths of everyone, just like um, that one student who just doesn't settle or is (laughs) unmotivated or you can't get them motivated and you're doing everything that you possibly can to do something about it and they just won't deliver and you're just like, come on, please, I'm begging you, please, come on. (laughs) I'm giving you everything here (laughs) but um, I think it's when it comes to the point of you have your focus on them so much that everybody else in the classroom isn't um, kind of given the um, same amount of um, you know attention and whatnot so it's just it's it's a pet peeve but sometimes it can't be helped so yeah yeah. I think it's it's really hard for some students to understand 
that they've actually taken time away from someone else and they don't yeah. really see it that way but as teachers and as adults we know by taking all of my attention all of these students are missing out on learning and that's what I'm mad about not your behavior or you, the fact that you're not engaged I'm yeah, annoyed that you're taking their time yeah exactly and to some extent you have to look at the bigger picture sometimes with students you know you don't know what's happening behind the scenes you don't know whether they're you know someone's passed away and they've still had to go into school or whatever so it's it's really thinking about what is the best thing to do with that student during that time that they're you know you can't lay every single bit of your attention to them um mm. sometimes if they are um causing like behavioral problems they're looking for attention so the best yeah. thing to do is to walk away and kind of say no that's not how you're supposed to like be in my classroom you know the expectations so yeah i'd agree with that what do you do to look after your mental health on a really tough day or to unwind at the end of a tough school day Ooh, okay so I like to do mindfulness um, exercises and I've done them since uh, I want to say about December time during university um, during my PGCA so um, there was a session on at uh, Manchester Met um, for a well-being day or whatever so did that um, and they had some little tips and things on how you can do, do be more mindfulness and it kind of went through the whole stage of um, why we get stressed and how, um, how to deal with it essentially. So um, what you can do is there's various different apps and things I use because I've got a Fitbit, it's built in. So I use the mindfulness and you do breathing and stuff. So that's one way that I can come back. Another way is probably talking to your peers and talking to teachers mm. alike because I remember I had a really tough day um, at the school um, and everybody else was in the same boat um, with the same <laughs> class. In fact, we were just there like, I've had a really, really, really rubbish day. Um, and my subject mentor, it was the exact same day and I was just like, oh God, I am so done with today. We were all in such a bad mood. And then um, head of drama came in and uh, she was like, oh God, I've had such a, like I've had a bad day today. And I was just like, yeah, so have we. <laughs> so we just kind of had, you know, a sit down and a discussion of what happened during the day after a meeting. So, you know, talking to your peers and stuff and having a little bit of a rant can kind of get stuff off your chest. So yeah. it's nice to have, it's, I think it's a really important thing as well is to have your um, have people that you can talk to during um, you know everything that's happening so yeah I agree with that <laughs> lots of um, other people we've interviewed have talked about that idea of debriefing at the end of a tough day it's really interesting that that one keeps coming up just talking to people getting off your chest not taking it home with you brilliant yeah um, and then our final question is um, What's one thing you'd like to change about education? Funding. Um, mm. Funding for the actual subject from previous schools or whatever. When I went to my old high school, most of the funding was put on science. The EBAC kind of areas, arts and music and stuff were untouched essentially. So in order to get rid of that wealth divide and students missing out because they haven't got the money, 
you need a substantial mm-hmm. budget, which we just I don't think we'll ever we'll ever have. Yeah, it's pretty. It's it's really tough as well because most stuff in music is really expensive to get mm. as well. Yeah. Like all the instruments and things, and maintenance of the instruments as well is not cheap. I know uh, budgets are really really um really t- tight. I don't think anyone's mentioned budgets yet, so that's really good. Why did you decide to become a teacher? Well, to be honest, like I've always wanted to be a teacher, like always, always. Since I was about four years old and started uh, like reception or whatever, I immediately from there, I just wanted to be a teacher. Um, I don't know what it was. Um, I think it was the fact that I just really enjoyed being taught and I enjoyed my teachers. So in my opinion, they were my role models outside of the whole like house. So, um, you know, it was just a matter of what subject (laughs) for me. What have you enjoyed about your PGCE as a whole? PGCE as a whole, meeting so many people on the course that I'm on. um, You know, it's not just been music that I've been a part of. I've been also been a part of art. So um, as one of the sessions outside of the school, I did a session which combined music PGCA students with the art PGCA and we did like a gamelan thing. So um, the arts people did um, like, they cut out a load of um, like little puppets and stuff. And we did the gamelan music. What advice would you give to someone considering a PGCA? You have to be organized. I mean, if you're an organized person, Teaching is a new level of organization. Get yourself organized and get yourself organized early because as soon as you become disorganized, it's just gonna become a mess. So keep yourself organized. What I would also say is to anyone taking a PGCA, make friends with your peers on the course. They are your first kind of uh, connections that you'll have as teachers. Um, as well as your subject mentors. So make sure that you make your connections as much as possible. What do you think your best organization tip is then? Just make sure that you are at least one day ahead of yourself in terms of lessons as well. If you're one lesson ahead, the kids won't know any different. In terms of organization from a you know, a, a teacher's perspective of professionalism outside of the classroom. How, you know, get yourself a teacher notebook or whatever. Write down whenever your teacher meetings are, whenever your briefings are, whenever there's a training day or a CPD session. Write it down um, or put it on, you know, like your, your phone calendar or something. Um, it'll keep you all organized. Um, as well as that, all of your lessons that you're going to be teaching as well and what you've been doing now, you know, during the day, just make sure that you write down what you taught that person or taught that class and keep it in a diary so then you can write down. So what I used to do was I wrote down what they did and what they're expected to do for the week after. So then I know exactly what to plan. So, um, and it just keeps you really organized and yeah, from a PGC perspective, looking at the essays that are due, just look on Moodle or if you don't know, um, there's people to email, email your tutor, email your RPD tutor, your um, critical studies tutor, just make sure that you, you keep in contact with people. Again, people on the course 
are likely to know as well. So they're in the same boat as you. So, yeah. What difficulties have you found trying to finish your training due to the coronavirus? Trying to understand assessment a little bit. It was one of my targets, um, both from my first placement and it was the end of review four. Um, trying to understand how to mark assessments and things was, a, I feel like that's a real big deficit of what I've um, had. In that respect, I feel like I'm at a little bit of a deficit because I don't know how how it's really run. Um, but in a, in a way, every school is different. So in that way, I think from another perspective as well is uh, probably you know teacher professionalism I've tried to do as much as I possibly can in terms of trying to build up my teacher professionalism so I've done CPD sessions online and um, try to build myself up on Seneca um, and obviously all the stuff that is on uh, MMU they run a lot of um, CPD sessions for people like me who are going into their NQT year so uh, I think it's just really important to just keep on top of stuff and that's all the uni have asked us to do as well is just keep engaged with the teacher standards and um, all the activities that they've given us so just keeping engaged. You mentioned Seneca, what's Seneca? Seneca is like an online CPD um, website that I've used, I think it's based in America um, but you can get free CPD for um, anybody can get it. Um, it's online. You can also get, I think you can set like homeworks and things on there as well. I think it's quite similar to um, show my homework. Um, so in that respect, you can set homeworks. There are certain areas that you can um, go on for specific subjects and things. You can have subject specific CPD sessions for teachers. You can have, um, you know, set specific homeworks for subjects. There's all sorts on there. That's brilliant. Have you found working in a classroom different to your initial expectations of being in a school? Not necessarily. Um, I think it's because I had a wee bit of experience prior to the PGCA. Um, so I worked I had experience in a couple of schools that I went to as a student. So I was in a mixed um, grammar school and I was also in a all girls high school. So I kind of had the experience of working in two different and completely different environments. Um, so I, the mixed grammar school was, I want to say, I think I researched this a few weeks ago. It was like 40% or zero. Uh, percent EAL students it's 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 massive you know teaching and learning in that environment and kind of looking and observing um, it was a completely different environment to the all-girls school in terms of resources as well the all-girls school had a lot more resources available um, whether funding was different I, I would probably say yes it was. I'm pretty sure that I had a word with the head of department as well there and they had, I think they had a bit of a boost to their um, funding that year. You know, it, I guess it swings and roundabouts when it comes to funding, but um, I think it's really important in terms of sitting in classrooms and stuff prior to your pre-GCA is to get as much experience in the classroom as you can prior to starting because your expectations might be completely different to what they might be 
um, when you first start out. Um, get as much as uh, experience in the classroom, whether it's just sitting down and being like a TA or just being an observer and looking at what um, specific students are doing. Um, so in my second year, I spent two days a week because I had one day that I was free and another day where I think I had a morning lecture and I used to go back to uh, back home and basically just do a day at the school because some people might do some people are scared as soon as they think you know they walk in and they think oh it's a nine to three job it's really not you got to consider all the planning that you're doing after school all the meetings that you're you're doing it's hard work especially during your pgc year it's hard work it is really hard work um you're constantly doing something to do with school and it's never off your mind um, yeah, I was going to say, if even when you're not at school or physically at school and you're at home, you're still thinking about school and you're still planning things in your head, yeah. working through problems. It's so true. Yeah, a constantly, t- like, especially during first placement, school was never off my mind. Um, you're always thinking, okay, what am I going to plan for this lesson? Or what if that student's going to be um, a pain in the lesson? Um, how am I going to adapt the lesson for this class? In your PGCE year, you're supposed to kind of evaluate each lesson as you go. Write down what went superbly in your lesson. There's always going to be ups within a bad lesson. This is a thing that, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year, I really struggled with, was time management of a lesson. You are going to overrun in your first four or five lessons. You will overrun or not have enough to say um that'll that'll go um you know with time and consideration of how much you can fit into a lesson i know for a fact i really struggled with it to begin with so try and be realistic with your timings um within a lesson is i think is really really important especially when you're first starting out but you get into a rhythm and then you stick with that rhythm i don't think there's ever a teacher that didn't struggle with timing at the beginning of their career or when they were training i think it's one of those things that you underestimate how quickly the lesson goes and then you overestimate how much you're going to get through and you've got to try and watch (laughs) (laughs) invest in a watch it'll be the best investment that you get (laughs) that's why i have a timer yeah, right. That yeah. I was going to say. That's why I have countdown timers because yeah. I am so bad. That well. <laughs> that's a really good thing, though, as well. My my um, subject subject mentor at the first school was like, "Have you got a watch? Have you got something? Have you got like a bit? You might need a big clock or something." And I was just like, "Well, I'm going to use my watch, but then I'm like, I don't know how long stuff's going to last for, or how long a certain element of something's going to, you know, take." So. Um, you know, starting off, it doesn't matter whether you think it's going to be four minutes or 10 minutes um, for one specific section. It's probably going to take you longer um, than you than you think. So the best thing to do is when you're planning lessons, you usually have like your lesson plan and the times given. Give yourself an extra two or three minutes than what you would think that you were going to like deliver for that lesson. So because things tend to you know when if you're not scaffolding or modeling a specific example it might take a little bit longer for them to conceptualize something great is there any research or reading that has revolutionized your teaching practice or that you think is a good shout for other people to look at 
It's part of my um, uni degree, I think, has helped me more than anything because I was a combined honours student. I did music with education studies. Um, so a lot of stuff to do with behaviourism has been quite revolutionary. So um, readings by, um, or, or theories, I should say, by Skinner and by Gotsky and Brunner, those kind of people, if you read into those kind of um, things, in terms of behaviour management, you are going to see results. And again, they all link back to the whole consistency theory. It's kind of that theory again, is if you are consistent with your students in terms of appraisal, um, you know, sanctioning, they're gonna understand you as a teacher and how you work. So it's really important to kind of grasp your understanding of behaviour management as soon as possible as well, because the sooner that you do that, the, the better the um, students will um, act towards your expectations. I agree. I think reading about the psychologists and why we behave that way and then putting it with the behaviour management strategies, if you put the two together, it's so much more powerful it than works. looking at one or the other by themselves in isolation. Yes. You think, you think, this is the funny thing as well. I used to sit in my education classes and think, I don't know why I'm doing this. This has no relevance to teaching or education at all. But when you sit and think and theorise and use it in your classrooms, it does work. We'll link those in the description as well. We'll link those theorists. Yes. What are you looking forward to most in your teaching career? Getting back into the classroom, I think with everything that's been going on with the coronavirus and stuff, I've missed being in a classroom. I've missed teaching. Um, I'm looking forward to you know, being greeted to my new students and having my own classroom. Um, you know, I'm taking over a department. Um, so in a way, I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm, you know, I'm more excited than that. So um, I'm really looking forward to seeing the outcomes that I can give to students as a teacher. Um, I'm looking forward to my development as a teacher. Um, I'm looking forward to all of the new people that I'm going to be meeting in the in the school. Um, I know there's one more. Um, I think they were in RQT. Well, they will be in RQT in September. So kind of getting together with other people in the department as well, because I believe that they're also within the computing technology and arts department, I think it's called. So we're all in in like one little department getting together with other teachers and being involved in that kind of stuff um i'm looking forward to just everything in general like even the open days and things i'm just really excited to start and just become a teacher and i just so do you have any tips for people who are applying for jobs research the school as much as possible before applying look at their ethos and include it within your um both your interview when you have it face to face and your um cover letter make sure that you use their slogans and things they will jump out at the head teacher who's gonna be employing you so make sure that you include the ethos as much as possible. Include stuff in your cover letter as much as possible in terms of what makes you stand out. On the day of the interview, make sure that you've had your breakfast, make sure that you're well prepared with a lesson, have a lesson plan printed and ready to go. Sophie, what advice would you give to PGCE mentors on how to be a good mentor? 
to a training teacher. So a PGC mentor, so making sure that they know what they're doing. Make sure within the, so for example, if you're teaching in a, in a placement A to a PGC student, be on them like fire. Because <laughs> I, I don't know how else to explain it. Make sure that you're constantly observing them. Be supportive of the person that you're mentoring. Make sure that you give them positives of the lesson, but also to be critical as well. Maybe give them one or two things that they've done really well in the lesson. I would say after they've done their um, evaluation of the lesson and kind of compare and see whether they have, you know, they're similar or if they're not similar. Make sure as a a subject mentor, you scaffold lessons, um, lesson examples. So, you know, after an evaluation, make sure that you sit down, um, especially if it's a, um, like a, an, an observed lesson, you sit down and you properly debrief about that lesson. What went well? How can you make it better? What was terrible about the lesson and how would that be changed? So thinking about every single aspect of the lesson and how it could be improved, even if it was a fantastic lesson. You know, if it was the perfect lesson, no lesson is perfect. There's always boundaries and always areas that you can improve, no matter what. It could be behavior, it could be the way that your PowerPoint was laid out. I know that was one of my targets. So <laughs> from my <laughs> professional mentor. So, um, you know, it, there's always stuff that you can improve on. Just make sure that you're supportive. Trainees are there to um, get support from you. I think that's really, really good advice, actually. In teaching and learning today, we are talking a little bit about behaviour management, whether it should even be called behaviour management. And both Hannah and I have been doing some research and thinking about different scenarios in which we'd use different strategies. And it's really interesting that we're using the words behavior management. Um, I prefer behavior management over the word discipline. I really, really dislike the word discipline because I think the connotation is that we're doing something that is a punishment. And I think anticipating behavior and also being proactive about behavior is actually way more important than reacting to the behavior when it becomes negative because there's so many things that you can do before it becomes a problem so for me really really hate the word discipline um but hannah you've got some thoughts you were reading something about the word behavior management recently tell us about it yeah so i've heard a lot of people call it relationship management and i think if we're going to progress as a teaching profession i think that's the way in my opinion, we should go because I don't want to manage somebody's behavior. I don't want to manage them in that sense. They have to have ownership for themselves. Otherwise, they're not going to do the right thing at the right time. They're just going to do the right thing when I'm staring at them and giving them the teacher look. So I would really like students to have a good relationship with me and with the rest of the class so that they respect each other. They respect me. They respect the equipment and the environment. And then they'll feel a sense of belonging and a wanting to do the right thing as opposed to feeling like they're being managed by me and it's all a, a process implemented by myself I want them to take responsibility so I do think that relationship management for me it's only a word change but I do think it's important that we think of it in that sense as opposed to 
controlling their behavior or managing their behavior because that you can't do that people are their own people they'll do what they like (laughs) (laughs) so true i know from my own experience of working with nqts when i was a mentor many years ago i once said to um, one of my trainee teachers you can't actually control what children do because if they don't want to do it they're not going to do it and i think if you do have a really positive relationship with someone they're more likely to get on board with what you're saying and they're not going to get on board with 100%. But even if you can get 70, sometimes that's a really massive win Um, because we can't control what they do, which also means that we can't always be responsible and we can't always predict how a child's going to respond to a situation because we just don't know the nuances of their day we don't know the nuances of their life. And um, sometimes you get reactions that are so unexpected, but having a whole bucket of solutions is always a really good idea. I always talk about a bucket of solutions because you can have a small bucket or you can have a really big bucket, but you want to be able to sift through it and find what you need when you need it. So having as many strategies as possible is always very useful. I think that's important as well, because obviously no person is the same. No child is the same. They're going to respond so differently to different strategies. There are things that generally work, but some students might require some more personalized strategies. So having an extra little, extra large bucket is really useful. And you can get that from, you know, a lot of reading, a lot of research, but also a lot of experience will tell you what works and what doesn't with certain students in certain settings. That's so true. So I think um, that idea of relationship management is an important one because we're setting expectations really, really early on. And I think making your expectations really clear is important. Obviously, you've got to have expectations in line with your school. But even in your own classroom, you can set really positive and really high expectations and just clarify them on a regular basis. So um, again, I've been looking at Sue Cowley's book, how to survive your first year in teaching. And she suggests um, these four expectations that you could apply to a primary setting, a secondary setting, a middle school setting. You could even do it in a higher education setting because I think the way we set expectations needs to be positive and it needs to be clear because as soon as you be- it becomes really wordy, there's too much interpretation. She suggests... We listen in silence when someone is talking. We arrive at lessons ready and prepared to learn. We show respect to each other at all times and we work to the best of our ability. And I think they're really clear. They're also framed in a really positive way so that when you're reminding the students of it, it's not a don't do this, don't do that. Because once you've used don't a few times, that's the only word they hear. They don't actually hear the bit at the end. They just hear don't, 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 no, no, no. So I really liked the way they're quite they're phrased and they're quite similar to the ones that I have in my own classroom. How about you, Hannah? What kind of expectations do you set early on? I like those ones. But I think if you have a set of rules that you've shared with the students on the very first lesson and you all agree them and the students know them and you talk about aspects of those rules, I think that sets you up for a better start because the students know what you expect. They know how to meet those expectations. And don't forget, these students have all come from different households. They've all had different experiences. Their parents have all got different types of expectations. So it's not that they're being naughty or they're misbehaving. 
it's that maybe they don't know your expectations in the very start. And then obviously there's going to be students who push those expectations and boundaries. And it's a great way for you to say, do you remember rule number one when we said we're going to respect each other and, you know, and you can talk about that and have a conversation about it. And that builds the relationship because if you stand there, the student breaks rule number one and you start shouting at them, they're not going to feel like they want to do what you say. It's going to push them a lot further away. So I think having positive expectations from the start, sharing them with the children and making sure that they understand them fully is the first thing that you should do with a class when you meet them. And I know it takes time. And for me, I might teach students once a week. But if I get that out of the way at the beginning, I don't have to worry about it later on down the line. I can just set gentle reminders. So I think it is really important to set those expectations at the very beginning, make sure they're clear, make sure the students understand them. I liked that you mentioned behaviour conversations as well, because having a conversation with a student about their behaviour and getting them to identify what the problem is can be really, really powerful because if they're able to acknowledge what's gone wrong, then you're able to move forward more quickly. And you'll always have students that say, you know, I've done nothing wrong, you're just picking on me. But if you can go through it and sort of say things like, do you think that the way you've behaved has been respectful to each other during this lesson? Um, You can even do a scale, a sliding scale, which is always quite good for those more difficult students. You can say things, well, on a scale of one to 10, how respectful do you think you've been during the lesson and then when they're a bit more reflective about it sometimes they can recognize they'll say oh maybe a five and you go okay what can we do to get it to a 10 it still keeps that conversation very positive despite the fact that something hasn't gone right in the lesson yeah and you don't want to judge them or shame them for their poor behavior because that will encourage them to continue to display that poor behavior because either they want to do it because they're getting attention or they're doing it because they don't understand what they're doing wrong. So you want to avoid any type of reinforcement of that behavior. So no shaming, no judgment, just a conversation really, really does work well with the low level. If students continue, then obviously that's a different conversation. I think it's also important to remember that kids just make mistakes sometimes because sometimes the behavior is a mistake. It's not always going out of their way to break a rule it's sometimes just they've made a mistake and they're learning because that's what they're doing they're children um when i first started teaching i was told to always be firm friendly but never familiar and i think it's a really good piece of advice for behavior management because although we want to have these conversations with students they're not our mates So you can be friendly with them, but you don't want to be familiar with them. You want to make sure that there's a professional line, that they're not your friend, they don't know all about your life, but you are friendly towards them and you still engage them with conversation. And the other piece of advice I was given really early on when having conversations with young people is particularly for those new teachers that are NQTs or even people who are PTCE and doing that the first time this year. I think it's very daunting walking into a room of 30 teenagers or even 30 small children. You've just got to remember that you always know more than the students that are in your classroom. Even if there's not a huge age gap between you and the students, you've had that life experience that gives you that so much more. When I first started teaching, I actually had a class of really strange class um, in Australia. 
and they were either girls that had fallen pregnant as teenagers and were going through their pregnancy. So they took a lot of time off and they weren't always at school and life was quite difficult. Or we had women in the class that had left school because of a teenage pregnancy and had come back to redo their education. So I actually had in my first ever tutor group a 30-year-old woman and I was not 30 at the time and I found that really daunting but I I had to remember well she's come back to do her education I've actually done this education however I could learn from her and um, trying to build up that relationship was quite difficult but we did manage to get there in the end because she's had this life experience that I hadn't had at that time and so we still had that firm friendly but never familiar we weren't mates but I gave her the opportunity to realise that we were in a mutual learning situation. I think as well that phrase, never familiar. If you are too over-familiar, it's very difficult to pull it back. So Uh if your students feel like they're friends with you, you're going to find it really difficult to discipline them. But if you've got that barrier there, there's always that respect because you want them to appreciate and respect you. You want them to look up to you but you don't want them to see you as an equal because that can cause issues with behavior management well relationship management and it can also encourage poor behavior that you overlook and I've seen it before many many times where one member of staff lets some students do things that other students are not allowed to do and it does cause conflict and it spoils the relationship between that teacher and the students who perhaps are doing the right thing but aren't getting any recognition for it because they see these you know stereotypically naughty students having lots of attention getting away with things having lots of praise and it at the end of the day the whole point of relationship management is to get students in a position where they're ready to learn so they can absorb more information and if you've got students who are unhappy for any reason whether it's because they're constantly getting shouted at or told off or because they think that you're mean to them and unfair, or because they think that they are being treated in a different way to somebody else, then that's not going to support the learning in the classroom. It's going to create a whole other issue. So this is why we think relationship management is really important to get right at the very beginning. So true. You've touched on two other really good points there, Hannah. One is knowing your student's profile because at the beginning of the year you're given these profiles and so much information to sift through but I think it's really important that if you have had some sort of relationship breakdown in a lesson particularly early on in the term go back through your profiles and see if there's a reason for it because you can't know everything about every child from September, particularly if you're new to a school or new to teaching. But say something happens in a lesson and you reflect on it and think, I don't want this to happen again. You can go through their profile and it might be they have an SEN need. There might be a safeguarding issue. There might even be, it might even be just a conversation with their tutor and they might say, oh, well, they're having a really rough time at home because of X, Y, Z. So having that understanding of their context is important. But I think also talking, you were talking about consistency and um, that consistency is so powerful. And that's consistency across your school. It's consistency in your classroom. And then it's consistently working with all of the people that support us, TAs, 
pastoral leaders, SLT, all of those people, if we're all consistent, we're all dealing with situations in a really consistent way. It's so incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Because then that sets the expectations again. It's like um, an unwritten rule that the students will follow. If you're treating every student the same, then it's like a social expectation that they will also follow suit. I don't know whether you have heard of Darren Brown, but he did an experiment where he asks four people who are stooges, who know what's going on, to pretend that they're in a an interview or in a waiting room for an interview. And they've all got a clipboard and a pen. And they're all writing on this clipboard, presumably, their information. And every time a bell rings, they stand up. And every time the bell rings again, they sit down. So after they've got these actors practicing, they send somebody in and the, this person doesn't know what's going on. So every time the bell rings and some and everybody stands up, this person's kind of looking at them as if to say, oh, that, that must be the social expectation. That's what I'm supposed to do. So they do exactly the same. And in the end, they took away the, the actors and it, there ended up being a full line of people who just complied to the ringing of that bell without even realizing it. And I think that's so powerful, that social expectation. It's not a negative pressure, it's a positive. You want your students to positively have that social influence so that they feel like, well, doing the work is the thing that we're supposed to be doing and it's the best thing for me to do in this situation. And that works really well. Finding ways to influence that social pressure works really well. And I think we've spoken about it in past episodes about not only setting those high expectations, but modeling those high expectations, because if you're doing it, they're going to do it. And then looking at the language of your modeling. So before this episode came on, me and Kath had a, a discussion about language that you should and shouldn't use. So I've been told before never to use the word can. So can you just sit down or can you just stop talking? Because it's implying that they've got a choice. The students don't have a choice. The expectation is that they sit down, thank you very much. And you're being polite and you're asking them to do something and you're expecting them to do it. So I think it's a really small thing, but for me, it does play a significant part in in my classroom every day because my instructions are clear. I'm expecting them to do those things and the social pressure will hopefully have an added effect on that. I was just thinking um, also using your manners when you're talking to kids and you ask them to do something or you tell them to do something, just saying, can you do this? Thank you. Or do this? Thank you. And starting with please and thank you goes a long way because then they know that you're showing them respect. Um, And then it just becomes part of your practice. It's really hard though in the beginning because you have to actually think about what you're doing and then it becomes part of your routine as well. My students are able to do impressions of me because I say the same things all the time. Like when I try to get students' attention, I do countdowns. And then after I've done my countdown, I'll always say pens down, eyes this way, mouths closed. And they're like, you say it every single time. And it's like, because I want you to do that every single time. And it's just now part of what I say as part of getting their attention. But it also sets the expectations when I want your attention. I don't want you working. I don't want you talking. And I do want your eye contact because that cycle of respect is eye contact and you know, some students won't be able to give you eye contact, but if they give you it for a second, you at least know that they're engaging and listening. I love that countdown. And especially in a classroom that's quite noisy, 
there's so many strategies that I have used in the past to try and encourage students to be quiet without me shouting at them because I, I just don't want to raise my voice. It's, it's not a nice situation. I don't want them to think I'm telling them off. So I've tried clapping because they do that in primary school. So you clap something and everybody claps it back. But also counting down really works for me. So I have a, a, a timer that goes off after the students have finished or should have finished a certain section of their work. The timer's on the board for them. So it'll say five or 10 minutes. They can see that timer counting down. When the, the alarm goes or the bell, if not all students are facing me, then I'll say, okay, in five, I want you to be facing this way. Four, take your hands off the keyboards. Three, turn your chairs around. Two, and that really works I'm not shouting but the students really respond to it and a lot of the time you know it's it's littered with a lot of thank yous and well done's and that works really well because they feel like they're not being shouted at if you if you <laughs> turn around and shout turn around face me <laughs> but you know it's this it's the same thing but just in a, a more aggressive way and I think it works really well just treating them with respect because they'll do it back I have a timer as well. It's a kitchen timer and I usually give them timer reminders because I've got so many visuals on my board. I usually can't have the visual timer. Um, I have had a naughty student steal my timer because it really annoyed them. They were like, I know how to get it, miss. I'll steal a timer. Um, so then I just used my phone and then they were like, oh, can't win. And they finally gave me back my timer. It is in a complete state of disarray, but I've had it for years. And um, I do think having a timer helps me, but it helps them. And I also love that it helps the people in my vicinity, in my building, because they know I have to pack up earlier than them. So when they hear my countdown at the end of the lesson for pack up, it usually gives them the <laughs> signal to do their plenary. And once someone said that in the, the building, I was like, well, I'm glad that my teaching now helped you as well. <laughs> You're teaching like three classes at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, Miss is doing a countdown again. It must be five minutes before the bell. <laughs> <laughs> I think, though, all those little strategies on ask or trying to get the students to do what you want them to do without raising your voice or, be, or being negative that has such a massive impact on the lesson. And there's so many things that you could probably Google to find that out. But yeah. if you're struggling for little strategies, just have a look and see if there's stuff on the internet because there's so much stuff out there. And, you know, we've probably only tried a portion of it and, you know, we're experienced teachers. So we have found something good and, and kept it. <laughs> but there's loads of things that you yeah. could do. And I think what worked for one teacher doesn't work for every single teacher. I think that's really important because sometimes you'll see someone do something and go, oh, that's such a good idea. And then when you do it, it just doesn't work for you. When you are coming up with strategies, it's really important to, first of all, know your school's behaviour policy first. Know what sanctions are available in your school because your school will have the best sanctions for that context of student and um, hopefully it's been developed by an SLT that's very knowledgeable and understands the context that they're working in because if you work in a school that has extreme behavior you're going to have different sanctions to a school that's a little bit more privileged or has students that are more just naturally more engaged so it's important to understand the difference between the sanctions 
It's um, also important to know what to do if the sanctions aren't served. So if you have a system where you have all these steps, make sure you know what happens if a student doesn't follow those steps. Know your awards, know crisis management and know what your expectations are. And if you've got all those, then slotting in and trying strategies are going to be much, much easier. So Hannah, shall we try some behaviour scenarios? Obviously, every member of staff is going to look at these types of scenarios differently, but we're going to give you an example of what we might do in our classrooms. Sometimes things don't work out and then there's a system of escalation, but this is what I would do. So this is from the verbally aggressive student from Sue Kelly's book, How to Survive Your First Year in Teaching. So... Colin is an extremely difficult student with severe emotional and behavioural difficulties. So you know that from his profile. He claims that you pick on him and whenever you try to tell him off or ask him to complete work, he reacts badly, throwing abuse at you. The standard of his written work is very poor and he rarely finishes anything. Colin is also confrontational with other children and none of them want to work with him. Your class has quite a few difficult children in it and you feel that Colin is dragging them all down with him. What would you do, Hannah? So from the very beginning, um, it sounds like he's quite a reactive student. So I would research some de-escalation techniques. So it's things like lowering the tone of your voice, talking really calmly, making sure that you're really clear about your expectations and very clear about what you want him to do. So instead of, like we said before, using phrases like, can you, it's Colin, that's your chair there. Just sit down for a second. That'd be brilliant. Thank you. So they're the types of de-escalation techniques I'd use. I'd make sure I'm always smiling at him. I'd make sure that I'm trying to appeal to his reasonable side. But things that you can put in place before he gets into the classroom are things like a seating plan. I really do think a seating plan is really important because not only is it great if you've got some you know, a mixed ability class and you want to make sure that the lower ability students or the ones that are struggling have got some support from maybe some high ability students, but it's also a great opportunity to sit students in terms of behavior. So from experience, boy, girl, boy, girl works really well when I've worked in different schools. It might be different for other people, but if Colin is particularly disruptive, you want him to either sit by himself, but that might, you know, that might encourage other behaviors he might struggle so you might want to sit him with somebody or two girls or two people who are really hard working and will encourage him to do stuff so that you don't constantly have to tell him what to do because I think the issue here is the relationship with the teacher and the student I think if the teacher was to say sit down he might find that offensive but if a student was to say come and sit next to me you might find that less confrontational. So that would work really well if you had a seating plan and you had some students sat next to him that could bring out the best in him. Also make him feel a bit special. It sounds like he is kind of a bit grumpy and a bit down with himself and maybe a bit underconfident. So give him something special to do. It might be, do you know what? I would really like you to hand out the books today or could you be the pencil monitor and if anybody puts their hands up, can you go and give them a pencil really sensibly? And if you do that, I'd really like to write in your planner that you've done some special jobs for me because it's really important that I've got some helpers in my class. And at the very beginning of a lesson, you know, set those expectations, set out what you want from him. That works really well. 
if he does demonstrate negative behaviors the reaction should be very minimal from the teacher if he's doing something that's maybe calling out it's going over to him and just saying something like not even talking about his behavior it could be would you like me to help you with that question or it could be is there something that you wanted to ask me so that I can help you with it because he will see that as a more positive kind of thing as opposed to telling him off obviously then it, it might escalate and if it does escalate it's telling him what your expectations are and reminding him of those rules but I think so far there's been a massive chunk that I've talked about that has demonstrated de-escalation and trying to put him in a positive mindset even before you've started doing any work so after that if he's still escalating that behavior I would say that would be out of your hands you'd have to go down the behavior route of, of the school so it might be you know three chances and you've got a detention or something like that but you don't want to get to that point because if you do that does spoil that relationship with that child and they'll always remember you as that teacher that keeps giving them detention or that teacher that hates them and you want to try and avoid that so are you going to tell me <laughs> how much I've gone wrong there <laughs> you know, it's very similar to what's like set out in the book and it's similar to what I would have said too and I think what I really liked about the way you talked about it Hannah was um talking about his learning rather than his behavior because actually that's what we're there for we're not there to make them behave we are there to help them learn so having learning conversations is I think a really really positive thing which isn't mentioned in here um, I think the only thing that Sue suggests that you didn't say was maybe talk to special needs staff for advice on how to deal with them because there might be a specific strategy or way that someone else works with them that's really positive. But it's very similar, like that idea of trying to keep him as calm as possible is really important. The only one that I was thinking of is if you're in a single sex school with a student like Colin, it can be really difficult to place students in seating plans boy girl well obviously can't do boy girl boy girl but I know from my experience of working in single sex schools often the student that wants attention wants wants to perform and wants everyone looking at them so I often which I know is counter to every piece of advice that you normally are given but I usually put them at the back of the room because it means I can get to them really quickly if I need to have a conversation with them as a practical teacher, I very rarely teach entirely from the front anyway, so I can get to them very, very quickly, but also removes that ability to perform in front of the students. Because sometimes if you put the loudest student front, it does discourage them, but sometimes it can be like, oh, I've now got everyone's attention and they can draw focus from you. So um, it's just one of those things that I've done in single sex schools, because I think dealing with a full class of boys is different to dealing with boys and girls mixed together. Yeah, I've probably got quite a lot of misconceptions about single sex schools because I haven't taught in one. So my, presum oh, right. my presumption would be that because there has been some research into the way that boys behave and girls behave when they're in single or mixed um, sex classes. And I'm sure there's been some research somewhere that a school has trialled it's a mixed school, but they have single sex classes. So you might be at a break and lunch and inform time in a mixed uh, a mixed group, but then 
in maths you might be if you're a girl you might just be with girls or if you're a boy you might just be with boys and apparently that helps boys work much better because they don't feel like they've got to perform in front of the girls especially as they get older and you know the hormones kick in so my perception would be that if you were in a single sex school the students would be a little better behaved but is that not the case (laughs) I guess it's more contextual, isn't it? Because um, the single-sex schools I've worked in have been um, denominational and also inner city. So you get an interesting mix of students anyway, but because it was inner city, we still had those behavioural problems. They just didn't seem as extreme as a mixed inner city school. And I think you do lose some of the distraction of girls, only some because I know... The school that I worked at had a girls' school down the road, so we often had boys that were really, really late to form time in the morning and then desperate to get out after school because they wanted to mix with the girls at the other school. So it has its own challenges. But, um, yeah, you still... I don't know. I really liked working in a boys' school. I did. Um, And I felt that the boys were more open to having open honest conversations because they weren't embarrassed to have those conversations in front of girls so I felt pastorally it was really strong but you still had all the behavior stuff you still had boys that wanted to be the class clown and you still had the boys that wanted to draw attention away and you still had those boys that were really quiet that just wanted to get on it was just there was no girls there (laughs) right let's do another scenario okay Are you ready, Hannah? Here's scenario number two. Go for it. The lesson has started and the whole class has settled well. A student turns up late to your lesson and enters your room shouting to his friends in the corridor. This student is often late to your lessons and takes a long time to settle and is disrupting the flow of learning. What would you do? If a student was late and they're often late, I feel like that's something that school needs to pick up because if it's happening for me, it's happening for other teachers. However, if you address it, as soon as that student walks into that room, if he's quite, if they're quite boisterous and loud as it is, and you say, why are you late in front of the whole class who are sat silently having, you know, listening to this conversation, this child's going to find it absolutely delightful that you've put them on this pedestal and they can explain their reasoning to the whole class. And sometimes, you know, it might be something that you don't want him them to explain so I think making sure that you have those conversations individually so if you can hear a student that's late and you can hear them approaching from down the corridor walk towards your door put your hands on your lips as if to tell them to be quiet and just Mm. and ask them to stand somewhere while everybody's quiet get them to be stood there quiet for even if it's 30 seconds as if you're about to tell them something but you want them to, you know, to conform first. When they're quiet and settled, the class are obviously quite capable of getting on with the work. You have a very whispered conversation with this student. I don't even like to ask why they're late. I just say to them, because, you know, whatever they say to me is not a good enough excuse unless they were on fire. That's that's what I always say to the students. (laughs) Unless you're on fire or something's on fire or the world is on fire, you should be on time. So I will, I yeah. usually say to the student, the expectations of school is that you get to this lesson at 10 o'clock. It's now 10 past 10. 
I don't want to dwell on this. You are going to go straight into that classroom, sit in your seat. The work is this and you explain it to them and, and you show them that that's what you expect. Obviously, some students don't respond to that. So that might be a different conversation. And then at the end of the lesson, I would pick that up and I'd ask that student to stay behind and I'd have the conversation there, a more in-depth conversation about the importance of being on time, why it's important, what they've missed out on, how they've disrupted the lesson and how there's no reason for being late. Students know where to be at what time, um, unless they've got a note from another teacher, that shouldn't be happening. And I'd also remind them of how many times they've already been late and the consequences of that in the future. So you're 10 minutes late now, you're going to stay with me for 10 minutes at break time or whatever it might be. And if you're late again, I'm going to have to escalate it to your head of year because your learning is so important. And I think as well, I've found if you talk to students as if you're fighting their corner, you know, I want you to be in this lesson. I have worked so hard to create these resources so that you can do well. I really, really want you to do well. But if you're missing out on that information, I can't help you. And that's all I want to do. All I want to do is help you. I am here to help you. So make sure that you're following the rules of the school and you are here in order to learn that stuff. Because obviously if that person walked into the room and you started shouting and, you know, it becomes a big conflict. So I think that's probably the theme, isn't it? Just to de-escalate and, and avoid the conflict and still make them accountable because it's really important that they are accountable. But shouting at them doesn't make them any more accountable than it would if you were to have that conversation with them. And I feel like sometimes that conversation does hit home a bit more because they feel because they've got that respect for you, because you are treating them with respect, they feel guilty because they have not followed what they should be. And I think that's a lot more powerful than having a student either scared of you because you shout at them or more likely than not, a confrontational student who doesn't like you because you shout at them. That's my take on that one. <laughs> what does Sue say? <laughs> Um, that wasn't a Sue one. That was one of my ones. I'm quite similar to you. I wouldn't deal with it as it happened. I would deal with it later in the lesson because I think when they're coming in late, it can draw focus from what's supposed to be happening. And I think that's sometimes what students want when they come in late because they want to kind of do the whole, I am here, everyone, it's me. And I think if you kind of just get them in and get them started, as quickly as possible and just remind them to set themselves up and all of those things. I think I agree with you, just make them as calm as possible, as quickly as possible. Talk to them later on in the lesson. I don't care about late excuses either because most of the time it's awful. And if they have a valid excuse, they'll have a note. So that, like if they don't have a note, it's not a valid reason essentially. And um, my big one is I, it's about learning time. So if they've lost that 10 minutes of learning time, they have to make it up in the lesson or they have to make it up in their own time. I totally agree with you. I think if they're doing it all the time in your lessons, it's important not to demonize them because that also gives them positive reinforcement for the 
behavior. So like going, you're always late. You always turn up at this time. Some kids love that. They're like, yeah, I do. And you noticed, you noticed me, look at me. So I agree with you. I would just say to them, I'm going to pass this on to head of year or whoever it is that's a pastoral leader in your school. It's important to keep a record of it because parents evening is a powerful time to have that conversation and say to the parent, just wanted to let you know that this child has been late to every single lesson. So if you've seen that they have more work for homework or that they've had a number of detentions, the reason is punctuality. Because I know there are some parents that are like, why are you always picking on my child? But if they can see it there, they're 10 minutes late every single lesson, it's going to make a lot more sense. And lateness is such an important issue to to reduce because of safeguarding issues. Because, you know, students, if a student's late to my lesson, by more than 10 minutes, I worry that something's happened to that student. Either, you know, I've worked in schools in the past where students have jumped over the school gates and and gone somewhere where they shouldn't. And it's so important that you notify the relevant people as soon as you figure out that that student is not in your classroom. Because if anything happens to that student, as a teacher, you are the one who can alert senior staff to you know their potential absence so it's really important that you do get it right but also I think that's important to mention to the students as well that all you're doing is looking out for them making sure that they learn really well making sure that they get somewhere making sure that they're safe and if they're not in your room how do you know that they're safe and how do you know where they are so it's really important if they're not where they should be make sure that you notify someone as soon as you know as soon as it's it says in your school policy, ours is, I think it's 10 minutes, but it is really important. Mm. All right, one more. You ready? This is a quick one. I don't think there's a lot to look at for this one. So very, very simple scenario. A student puts their head down on the desk and falls asleep. What do you do? I find these types of quiet defiance the most frustrating to deal with with students who have got their heads on the desk or don't want to get involved there's so many reasons behind it and it could be that they are feeling really miserable and sad and upset something's really bothered them and they just can't engage with anybody right now it could be that that student has not been sleeping very well because of issues at home or because they're on computer games all night. So they're just really, really tired. And even if they were sat up, they wouldn't be able to focus on the work in school. It could be that they find it really difficult. And in that instance, what you should be doing is looking at your seating plan and making sure that they're sat next to somebody who can support them, making sure that you've differentiated your lesson materials so that that student can access it. Uh, Maybe look at their profile Um, If they're SEN, make sure that you're addressing all of those things on the profile to make sure that that student can engage because, you know, sometimes they're disengaged because they physically can't do it and they don't want to fail. So they just totally shut off. For those students who do it more of a behaviour thing, I think the whole key is, like with all the others, to not really have much of a reaction, to not escalate the situation and try and talk to the student but also make it clear that there will be consequences if they don't follow suit, whether it's extra homework, whether it's they've got to stay behind and finish it off. And they don't like it. They really don't like doing that. So I think it's really important that whatever you set as a rule or an expectation, 
you follow it through. Because there's no point if that child sits for 15 minutes with their head on the desk and you turn around and say, you'll be catching up that work at break time. And then break time comes and you've forgotten. That student will then learn, I can do that next lesson then because there was no consequences for me. So I think that it is with a lot of relationship management techniques, it's that line between I've got to be firm, I've got to be fair, but also what is that student here for? I've got to make sure that that student has the best chance to achieve whatever qualification or whatever it is in your subject. And you can't do that while they've got their head on the desk. So conversations with them, persuasion, but ultimately this is the expectation. If you're not meeting it, these are the consequences. And if it is a student who's struggling, who's you know not getting enough sleep at home or is finding schoolwork really hard, I think that's a conversation that you would have with a different member of staff. So it might be someone in the safeguarding team because you're worried about them because they're not able to focus and hold attention and you want to know or you want to make sure that that student's okay outside of the classroom. If they're struggling with their learning needs, it might be that you could go to the SEN lead or the the SENCO and ask them if there's any strategies that you could use with that student that would help. But ultimately, that is kind of a personalised approach, I think. I think that's a lot more niche than I can get, (laughs) than I could go into right now without knowing the student because it's hypothetical. Would you wake them up? I think it's important to. I don't think you can have somebody sleeping in your room. It sets a bad example for the rest of the class because if they see that that's happening in your classroom, they'll think, well, such and such is getting away with it. So, uh, you know, I don't have to work as hard or... And I think it is important. And if then... If it's something that's really affecting them, if they're really tired for whatever reason, then it might be that you send a quick email to the safeguarding team and they just pull that student out and and make sure that they're okay. But it has to be dealt with, I think, in that lesson as soon as possible. If that student's not responding, then you need you might need somebody to come in and, and give you some support. I would um I would wake them up as well, but I would wait until all the students were doing work yeah. so that I could talk them one to one. But for me, I think it is a straight safeguarding issue. And I think that's pretty much as far as I would go because I would let the safeguarding team um, advise me first on how to deal with that situation. Because like you said, um, someone not sleeping, there's so many things that could be happening behind the scenes that leads to that. Often it can be um, abuse or neglect which is awful. Um, We also, I've taught a child who was narcoleptic. So um, once he was asleep, you couldn't actually wake him. But because it was a medical issue, it meant that as soon as he woke up, we'd have to send him to medical. But not knowing that initially, you just don't know how to deal with it. And so, yeah, I think I would just wait for safeguarding to tell me what to do next. Because the worst thing that you could do, I think, in those situations is make a really horrible situation even worse yeah and ruin that relationship for the future because you don't want that student remembering you as the teacher who made their already difficult time more difficult exactly so I think that's a really good note to end on I think my last piece of advice in terms of behavior would be if there is a situation that you don't know how to deal with You need to refer it on whether that's pastorally, whether that's to senior management or whether it's to safeguarding because some behaviour incidences and some relationship breakdowns are beyond your control because something else is going on. And if in doubt, 
do a safeguarding form. I think it's always the safest to do that because sometimes an extreme behaviour is the result of a warning sign and it's their cry for help, which is quite sad. Yeah, all the reasons behind poor poor behaviour are not necessarily because that student is trying to deliberately ruin your lesson. And I think you've got to keep that in mind with every interaction with students. If this is a student acting out because something bad has happened to them, I I don't want to make that situation worse. So it's all about de-escalation, making them feel safe, making them feel valued, making them realise that you want them there. Um, Because that's the only way really to make those negative reactions into a positive. In Pupils Causing Concern, we're going to hear a story from Sophie. Let's have a listen. There was a student who came into my class in my first placement and this kid does a full-on cartwheel in the middle of the classroom and I was trying my best not to laugh. I was just there like, come here. Like, my face was just like trying to stay straight. I was just like, what are you doing? Why are you cartwheeling in the middle of my class? He was like, Oh miss, I don't know. And I was just like, Do you think it's do you think it's a good idea? Do you think do you think um you know do you think people aren't gonna be hurt or do you think you're you're not gonna be hurt by that? Because you were in the midst of about four or five people and he was like, Oh no, miss, no and I was like, Do you think you should do it again? He was like, No and I was like, Good, sit down. So yeah, it was so funny though. In any other business, we're going to talk about some upcoming episodes. So next week, we're going to speak to Dr. Susan Davies and Dr. Rhiannon Packer, and they're going to talk about their experiences with shy children and how to differentiate for those types of students. Because normally when we think about differentiation, we think about differentiation for people premium students. We might think about boys versus girls. We might think about SEN students. But actually, this is something that me and Kath have both talked about and it's not something that we use we would think about in a lesson so that episode is going to be really interesting and they're going to talk about the impact of shyness on students what strategies you could use as a member of staff to improve the attainment and also improve the experience for shy children and how you can develop their confidence to support them in their development and later in life so that's going to be really interesting and here is their favorite teacher yeah, well my, my favourite teacher was in primary school, her name was Miss Roberts, and she used to, every afternoon we used to have story time, and she'd read from the tales of Narnia, and I, I was just transported into a different world, and it, it just gave me my love of reading and love of books, because I used to think it was the best time in the whole day, and again, quiet, peaceful reading time, it probably was only for about 20 minutes, but I was just transported into, into Narnia. So I was in the wardrobe. I was, I, you know, I was that that girl in in Narnia. If you want to listen to our episodes, you can find us on Patreon. And if you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll get the episodes without ads and before everyone else on a Monday. Or if you subscribe through other channels, you can get them on a Wednesday through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and wherever you get good quality podcasts, you can get us on a Wednesday. If you want to get in contact with us and um, chat with us about what you'd like to hear on upcoming episodes, you can talk to us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, 
and Instagram, or you can contact us directly, noncontacttime at gmail.com. And our social media handle is at noncontacttime. We really look forward to hearing from you because we love hearing from our listeners and hearing your thoughts and suggestions. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.